Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Cycling is a sport of what-ifs. What if that rider hadn't punctured? What if this rider hadn't crashed or picked up that injury at the start of that season? And some of the most fascinating questions surround those riders who never delivered on their early promise. And one of the sport's great what-ifs was Frank Vandenbroek, a shining hope of Belgian cycling in the 1990s, whose career was blighted by drugs, poor mental health and bad decisions, and whose death in a hotel in Senegal at the age of 34 left many questions unanswered. Vandenbroek is the subject of a new biography by Ruler's former editor, Andy McGrath. God is Dead is the name of the book. Um, Andy, I think yours is the first proper English biography of Vandenbroek, isn't it? Um, What prompted you to write it about him? I wasn't around for his heyday, so I was here, but I wasn't into cycling. I got into it about 20 years ago, just when Vandenbroek was having his comeback period. And that's what I remember most, that kind of he was this slight figure of really um, of ridicule um, in world cycling because he was, you know, in the headlines for the wrong for the wrong reasons, really. It was actually my agent suggested Vandenbroek to me, though. That was, that was the idea. I thought there'd already been a book written about him in English, but there hadn't. I'd say I'm fairly partial to bike riders who have been through adversity or experience adversity or kind of have something more to them than, than just winning bike races, you know, for, for whatever reason. Uh, tortured souls, you know. Because your award-winning uh, previous book was Bird on the Wire about Tommy Simpson. And did you find any sort of similarities between the two of them? I mean, they were both people in some ways who were kind of brought down by their, their, their own character, weren't they? Yeah, well, also I was thinking that if I do another book, I should not write it about someone who died young and had kind of some drug problems um either way whatever i do um the different periods really i suppose they're separated by 30 years both very charismatic kind of both very impetuous impulsive people who packed so much into their young lives um you know died in their 30s but you know some of the stories in it i just couldn't believe it like it's like fiction some it's crazy like vandenbrook sneaking into an Italian amateur race late in his career with a fake fake name poorly translated and Tom Boonen's photograph attached to his racing license and the um, Tour de France he basically got out of the he didn't want to do by faking injury and then ruined it by limping on the wrong leg in front of all the photographers uh, there was just so much crazy stuff that he did that's 
you know, should be fictional, but it's all, it's all true. The title God is Dead is a reference to the fact, uh, I guess, that, you know, after his early successes, Belgian cycling fans would address him as God, describe him as God, and which even by the standards of Belgian cycling fans, that must have put a huge amount of pressure on a young rider. It's a cool nickname, isn't it? Uh, to be called God, like, it doesn't get much better than that. But it's also, it's a charge nickname. Because how do you possibly live up to that that crazy expectation? Um, and Belgium is a fan- fantastic country. There's no other nation like it which appreciates cycling like, like they do. But it's also problematic in the sense that there's such such a fixation that, you know, for the media, for towns, people, they're also into it that it's like living in a fishbowl sometimes. And when things aren't, uh, um, aren't going well, and Vandenberg was really accustomed to the adulation, to the acclaim, when things started going badly, he never experienced that before. He never experienced the kind of looks of admiration turning to shame when he was involved in his first scandal. And that, that was the kind of beginning of the end for him, the start of his fall from grace. Probably the only other rider who was ever referred to as God by his fans was Marco Pantani. And there are some, you know, without stretching it too far, there are some similarities, aren't there? The, you know, the mental health issues, the, the drug use, the feeling of paranoia. Did you, and, and they were sort of contemporaries as well, weren't they? There are actually huge parallels, which surprised me. I mean, they were friends, firstly, but like everything from you know being miracle children to mothers who thought they couldn't conceive again, to both loving fishing, to having problems with their parents, to the same hallucinations caused by drugs, to even possibly like wanting to race on the same team one year. Like they really are kind of closely connected. I think Vandenbroek didn't quite enrapture the international cycling community as much as uh, Pantani did who in fairness won the Tour de France, which Vandenbroek never got close to, even though the Belgian media would have you think that <laughs> he could do it. He didn't get close in the end. I suppose they're both cautionary tales. And it's quite interesting. I think by kind of dying young, they're, they're crystallised. They'll never have to age. They'll never have to have more, you know, inferior results. And Vandenbroek always said he wasn't going to be another Marco Pantani in the after Pantani's death. Yeah, that's one of the sad things uh, that I got from doing the book that, you know, four, five, six times there are people who told me in Vandenbroek's entourage, this is where it could have been different. If this had uh, kind of happened, then this would have been different and he'd still be here. And you just think if only one of those things had happened, he probably would still be here because uh, I knew him best. But um, ultimately, that didn't happen. So maybe there are some lessons there. Like a few of the people who I interviewed um, actually said to me in passing that the Remco should read the book, Remco being Remco Evenepoel, the kind of current Belgian super talent. There's still questions there about how you treat a very fragile kind of prospect, maybe especially like a Belgian prospect, because the pressure is immense. The hype is huge. I don't see how he can really win. Like if he wins the Tour de France, everyone says, well, we expected it. If he doesn't win, then it's somehow not fulfilling that ridiculous pressure. One of the things you hear a lot about these days, one phrase you hear a lot about these days is duty of care. Yeah, the, the duty of care that teams have to their riders or officials have to their riders or agents, etc. But it does seem, reading the book, that no one really seemed to feel there was a duty of care towards Vandenbroek, didn't they? Yeah, I certainly think that's one of the things that has changed. I, I, I kind of um, address it in the latest issue of Ruler, uh, which is out now, talking about duty of care, really, and it's really a very fine line. Like, professional sport, be it cycling, football, tennis, whatever, is a results business, like, you are on that team to either get the win or help your leader get the win. 
or or get the best kind of performance possible, how careful should the team be when it comes to riders' mental health? Kind of where does their um, involvement there start and stop? Certainly, twenty five years ago, twenty years ago, for example, with Cofidis, it seems like the team management were asleep at the wheel. They were having parties behind the scenes on uh, training camps, fueled by um, alcohol and sleeping pills, and having euphoric highs and going on all night benders. Like, but the crazy thing was that Vanderbrook could still win the next day. So I guess you know, with him still performing, still functioning, that was another um, incentive to not really nip it like in the bud, or even fire anyone, or fire him. I'm sure we've all read loads of books about doping in cycling especially during that sort of era one of the things and you mentioned it there that i hadn't really um seen much about before was this uh, drug still not which i think a lot of people will know as ambien uh, sold as ambien in the states a sleeping pill but it was used at, in huge quantities especially by the teams that vandenbroek was on they still use sleeping pills in the peloton and it's understandable because there's so much adrenaline after race or they've had you know so many caffeine gels or whatever. And it's the old adage that, you know, the Tour de France is won in bed by resting. So if you can't get that shut-eye, like two weeks into a Grand Tour, that can be the difference between winning and losing. Like also, it's very clear that sleeping pills, you shouldn't be using them really for more than kind of several weeks, it, kind of even if you have sleep problems. And frankly, you know, writing, writing the book, like I nearly went method. Like I thought about, should I take some still knocks and have some alcohol? But luckily, my housemate kind of at the time was like, that is a terrible idea. Do not do that. Do not damage your life. Like, don't even go down that road. So I didn't. But I was like, how can I write about it if I haven't experienced that weird high or like loss of motor function that you start getting? To be clear, if you do take um, Ambien or, or whatever and drink at the same time, especially if you take Ambien in large quantities, it has an extraordinary effect, doesn't it? And th- this was happening in the middle of stage races. Yeah, and training camps, like, you know, partly from boredom, partly for the high, that you kind of, the strange kind of high. It's quite a ghoulish thing, you know, kind of what they were doing or the reactions that it would give them. Then you don't remember what you did the next day. Like, it's, it's very scary. One of the things that sort of came out of, I think, Matt Rendell's book about um, Marco Pantani, the death of Marco, Marco Pantani, was that although everyone said, you know, he was a brilliant raw talent and it was a terrible thing that happened to him, actually, he was probably doping right from the very start of his career. So it's actually really hard to kind of work out how much of a raw talent he was and how much of it was drugs. And the same sort of thing could be said about Vandenbroek, wasn't it? couldn't it? Because everyone said, oh, I've never seen such a promising young rider. But it's not clear at what point he started taking drugs. We do know like from elite kind of court, court deposition that Vandenbroek says that he started doping in, uh, in 96, which would have been three years into his pro career. I can't fully um, agree with that because... He did win so many races as a kind of junior. I think there was one season where he won 50% of all the races that he started, which for anyone is a is a dizzying kind of win ratio. Like it is pretty clear that Vandenbroek, and I'm pretty certain that he wasn't doping when he was 16 years old, he was an incredible innate talent. He just had it. Some riders do. But unfortunately, he turned pro really at the worst possible time. You know, 1994, EPO, the blood booster was... Um, on the rise and, and about to go rampant. And most of the youngsters who were turning pro had a weird, pragmatic choice to make. You either... And it's really very hard to judge, kind of, unless you're in their shoes. Well, it's not hard to judge. We can all judge. But I tell you there, and you've dedicated 10 years of your life, your kind of very young life, to something. And then the choice is either cheat 
like everyone else is, and not just perform on the bike, but be accepted socially, be accepted in the team, in the hierarchy, that's important too, or don't do it, be incredibly strong, stick to your principles, and the chances are that you won't keep up, you lose your contract, and everything you work towards and kind of end up with nothing. Yeah, I tried to put myself in their shoes. It's a really, really tricky choice. You spent a lot of time travelling around Belgium doing interviews for the book. What, and some people didn't want to talk to you, uh, as I understand, but um, what's the sort of general opinion there? How do people this at this distance remember Frank Vandenbroek? With a lot of fondness. I mean, there were only a few people who didn't want to talk to me for the book. And a few of those, that was partly because I'd just talked for another book in Dutch about Vandenbroek. That's the other thing, that there's kind of a bit of an industry around Vandenbroek since his death because he was so beloved. They made a, a Belgian TV documentary show from his autobiography that was one of the most viewed things in Belgium. Like Things with his name on it sell well, or people like them because they liked him. Yeah, I mean, he's not quite yesterday's man either. Like Even though he basically turned pro 30 years ago and raced with Sean Kelly... He also raced with Chris Froome and about you know, 25 other riders um, who are still pro now. So I, so I talked to Ilya Kaiser, for example, at the Vandenbroek Memorial Race. And he looked up to, to Vandenbroek uh, when he was young. And now he's a kind of a guardian angel for Remco. So it's kind of funny um, how it goes full circle for some of them. But for so many people, they just they tell the stories and they're smiling. And it's like Vandenbroek is still here now because of that fondness. His death in a, a hotel room in Senegal while he was on holiday has never really been explained, has it? Did, did you, in the um, research for the book, come to any conclusions of your own about that? There are three kind of there are three main theories, and you know I couldn't say for certain factually which one that it is. You know, the first one is what we're told is that it was natural causes. That was the official kind of verdict from the Senegalese autopsy, but a thirty-four-year-old. Um, even one with a history of substance abuse doesn't just drop dead and he'd already had heart exams you know during his career which shows there weren't really any defects the second one is um, is suicide unfortunately that um, he'd already tried to commit suicide twice in his life previously both times with insulin and insulin was one of the things found on his bedside next to him in that hotel room so that has to be considered the third one is intriguing too so One of the last people to see him was a prostitute. She took some, I think, some money um, from him um, and his watch. So there's many in Vandenbroek's entourage who think that it was an kind of attempted poisoning to incapacitate him, like in order to maybe kind of facilitate this kind of theft, kind of gone wrong. Because Vandenbroek had some alcohol in his system because it had been out and it all went terribly wrong. And it it isn't the first time this kind of thing has happened in... Um, in Senegal, to rich or kind of famous people. Those are the kind of three main possibilities. And yeah, it's still it's still a bit of a mystery, but it's interesting. I, I think that also preserves a certain myth too, Vandenberg. It's a very sad story, but a, a fascinating book. Andy, uh, thank you for joining us. Um, God is Dead by Andy McGrath is published by Bantam Press. And you can buy signed copies through the Ruler website. And you can also, listeners to this podcast, can win a signed copy by answering the following question. Andy, what is the question? Name the monument race which Frank Vandenbroek won. The only monument that Frank Vandenbroek won in his career. And you can send your answers to podcast at ruler.cc 
podcast at ruler.cc and you can buy copies of the book on the Ruler website, ruler.cc, and you can subscribe, obviously, to the magazine there as well. Orla is now going to explain why you should. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinaway, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. This is Ruler Conversations. Ruler edition 110, the classics issue, is on its way to subscribers now, featuring Sonny Cobrelli, Kasia Niwadoma, uh, first-timers at Roubaix and much more. From it, Phil Wright now reads Paul Maunder's Tribute to the Cobble. The joy of sets. It is a strange object to worship. A big lump of grey stone, placed alongside a thousand other big lumps of grey stone. Inanimate, hardly very dynamic. And yet we cycling fans love the cobble intensely. We revere and fetishise it. For us it holds secret meaning and evokes fear, awe and excitement. If the novelist J.G. Ballard, that infamous bard of suburban life, had gone to watch Paris-Roubaix, he would have come back with a fair bit of material. Let's unpick this weird relationship, starting with the basics. When is a cobble not a cobble? Most of the time, actually. When we talk of the cobbled classics, we are using the wrong word. Cobblestones are of a naturally occurring size and shape, harvested from the beds of streams and rivers. In other words, they are big pebbles. Thankfully, the term pebble-dashed classics never caught on. When laid in sand, they can create a very durable and well-drained road, or a lovely driveway, and your nag will thank you for the extra grip cobblestones provide. Disadvantages include being very noisy when crossed by a horse and cart, In the olden days, the families of sick people would throw straw across the road in front of their house to dampen the sound and not wake the invalid, and being horribly uncomfortable to ride across on a bike. The stones of Roubaix and Flanders are sets, rock that has been quarried and cut into rough squares or rectangles. Sets have almost exclusively been sourced from the Lazine quarries a few kilometres south of Herodsbergen. Since 1862, porphyry stone has been quarried there. An igneous rock formed of fluid magma 500 million years ago. It was first discovered at Lazine in the 15th century. Once the locals established that its hardness and durability made it perfect for road building, they recruited gangs of convicts for a spot of hard labour. Soon the grey blocks of Lazine covered roads right across northern Europe, including the farm tracks that we see in Paris-Roubaix. The boulevards of St. Petersburg were laid with them. Even the most famous avenue in cycling, the Champs-Élysées, is made from interlocking arcs of porphyry stones. Belgian traders setting out from Antwerp for the United States would add sets to the belly of their empty ships as ballast replacing them in New York Harbour with whatever goods they were bringing back to Europe. The sets were then used to lay roads in Soho, the West Village, Tribeca and the Holland Tunnel. 
Consequently, sets became known in the United States as Belgian Bloc. Other than heritage projects and the driveways of discerning cycling fans, sets are not so much in demand these days. The quarries at Lezine and nearby Canast stopped producing them on an industrial scale in the 1950s. Their focus recently has been producing gravel for infrastructure work such as the Channel Tunnel, the Delta Works in the Netherlands and the TGV train lines that crisscross France. They have not, to the author's knowledge, been asked to get involved in gravel racing. What did the Romans ever do for us? Last October, I was in Rome with my family. Between gelati, we took in a bit of history. In mellow autumnal sunshine, we walked through the ancient ruins adjacent to the Colosseum. This was where the wealthy and powerful lived and worked. Mayfair, Westminster and Chelsea all rolled into one. Some of the original roads remain, and they were constructed of huge cobblestones. Polished by millions of tourist shoes, these cobbles were so big that we hopped from one to the next like stepping stones across a river. The Romans were the first civilization to design and build roads systematically. Cobbled roads and paths had existed before the Romans, the first examples being in Mesopotamia, Babylon and Crete, but they were principally ceremonial roads connecting palaces and temples. For the Romans, roads were integral to their empire. At its height, their network stretched over 50,000 miles across Europe and Asia Minor. Roman road builders didn't mess about. For an important road, they started by digging parallel drainage trenches 10 metres apart. The excavated earth was then used to build a foundation one metre above the trenches, on top of which were added five layers. Sand, crushed rock, gravel in cement mortar, cemented sand and gravel, and topped off with paving slabs such as the ones I marvelled at in Rome. The finished road had two lanes, a crown at the centre, high curbs and two side lanes for pedestrians. Had the bicycle been invented then, the Romans would have made some superb bike lanes. They set the standard in early road building. And after the empire fell, it was more than a millennium until roads looked so good again. During the Industrial Revolution, engineers experimented with various combinations of sand, gravel, rocks, bitumen and even wood. In Northern Europe, drainage was a common problem. Durability too, for loose services, inevitably became rutted with heavy use. In the second half of the 19th century, the proliferation of a wonderful new piece of technology, the bicycle, was the catalyst for a resurgence in road building. Sets were the dominant material, with asphalt used only occasionally. When set in sand and laid closely, these quarried stones provided strong, well-drained and relatively smooth surfaces for cyclists, horses and the first automobiles. Belgium was at the epicentre of a sustained explosion in road building. The lads at Lazine were very busy. Laying the foundations of myth. The two most famous cobbled, I'm going to keep referring to cobbles rather than switching to sets, it just sounds too weird, bike races are Paris-Roubaix and the Ronde van Vlondelen. Today we equate them because of their famous stones, but the impetus for their creation was very different. 
Paris-Roubaix was conceived in 1896 as a way to promote the newly built velodrome in Roubaix. The route just happened to pass along some cobbled farm roads. The race was an immediate success, with the public and the organisers noting that the cobbles gave the race's finale a certain frisson of unpredictability. Most of the roads in the area were dirt. Those that were cobbled had seen a lot of use from industrial and agricultural traffic and were in a state of disrepair, with missing stones, big gaps and rough edges. By ensuring that the race took in these sections during the final 60 kilometres, the organisers created the template that still provides so much entertainment more than a century later. Durand was an exercise in nation-building by its founder, Carol van Veenendaler. In 1913, when the first edition was held, Flanders was weaker and less affluent than neighbouring Wallonia. Van Veenendaler wanted to create a race to unite the Flemish community and act as a symbol for its regrowth. It would take place entirely on Flemish roads, which just happened to be cobbled. No one called it a cobble classic back then. Indeed, riding on cobbles probably seemed like the height of luxury compared to the dirt roads found elsewhere. The turning point came in the middle of the 20th century, specifically for Paris-Roubaix in 1968, a year that was culturally significant for France in much wider terms. Four years earlier, the Dutchman Pieter Post won with an average speed of more than 45 kilometres per hour. There were fewer than 30 kilometres of cobbles on the course that year. The organiser, Jacques Godet, was appalled. He didn't want a fast race over tarmac roads. What was the point in that? In 1968, he sent his colleague, Albert Bouvet, out into the French countryside with one brief. Find more cobbles. Rather than waste his time driving around aimlessly, Bouvet knew just the man to ask, Jean Stablinski. The 1962 world champion had worked in the coal mines at Arenberg near Valenciennes and was a friend. He showed Bouvet many kilometres of little-known cobbled roads, including the Tour de Arenberg, a sector which has become notorious. When asked if he ever rode through the trench in training, Stablinski shook his head. Too hard, he said. Later, once the diabolical section had been incorporated into the race, he admitted to journalists that he felt guilty for his role. In 1913, a third of the Rons route was cobbled. After World War II, many of these roads were paved with asphalt. Concerned that the modern roads would kill off their race, the organisers also went off on a porphyry treasure hunt. It turned out to be a fruitful exercise. Among other bergs, they discovered the Muir van Herodsbergen, the Bosberg and the Oude Croimont. Now the cobblestones are tourist attractions and protected by government legislation. One of the most famous features of the modern route has been the Koppenberg climb. This steep, narrow and roughly cobbled ascent, sunken into the farmland and covered by trees, provided both attacking and photo opportunities. After the farcical incident in 1987, when Danish racer Jesper Skibby fell off his bike and watched helplessly as a race organisation car ran over it, the Koppenberg was withdrawn from the route. Keen not to lose the special character it gave the race, the organisers spent $500,000 on importing new cobbles from Poland to relay the surface. Downton Abbey, Lenore 
halfway through A Sunday in Hell, the classic 1976 film about Paris-Roubaix. The focus switches from the dust-blurred chaos of the race to a study of a group of fans waiting by the roadside. The camera scans from a middle-aged woman in a sparkly black top playing cards with her friend to an old gent who trains binoculars on the horizon to a teenage boy holding a radio to his ear or some young men in suits, a dude in a leather jacket. Everyone is in high spirits, enjoying the sunshine. These are local people, the narrator points out, who come out to watch the torture and masochism of the race that has made their region famous. They look for a cloud of dust in the distance. Now, were you to stand on that same corner, it's likely that you would meet the children and grandchildren of those 1976 spectators, staring at their phones instead of the horizon. You would also meet fans from a range of countries. Like all big races, Paris-Roubaix is now a more international affair. We love the cobbled classics because they provoke in us a complicated emotional response just as mountain stages of grand tours do. Whether misshapen stones or steep climbs, they are obstacles for the riders. They cause visible suffering. Didn't we all revel in the photographs of Lizzie Dynan's blood-stained handlebars? Cobbles call for exemplary bike handling, one of the reasons we love to watch the professionals. They also introduce an element of luck. We may not care to admit it, but this appeals. A very skilled rider may be able to minimise his or her chances of punches and crashes, seeking out the crown of the road, but there is always the possibility of fate striking and striking hard. Paris-Roubaix is the last folly cycling offers its followers, said Jacques Godet. Sometimes the gods of Lenore seem to delight in conspiring with the cobbles. Isn't that so, Mr Moscon? So our emotional response is layered, shifting. We feel for the poor riders at the same time as wanting to put them through this hell. We applaud their acrobatics whilst watching crashes in slow motion. It is a sadistic form of theatre. Today, the cobbled classics have moved beyond folly. They are period dramas, like an English country house story played out in the rural backwaters of northern France and Belgium. It's no accident that the cobbled roads are close to Flanders fields, to the French battlefields of the First World War. They are part of the wider landscape, which has changed little over 150 years. The bare ground and bleak horizon are as much a part of these races as the cobbles. There is a sense of the timeless. Man and machine pitted against the elements, wind, rain, stone. Sport may be folly, but it can also be heroism. In Roubaix Velodrome, the winner hoists aloft their trophy, a grey set. A humble, if weighty, trophy. The cobbles connect us to our collective past. They stand for suffering on many levels and the passing of time. They stand for resilience and bravery. That is why our April Festival of Worship will continue to thrive. Phil Wright reading The Joy of Sets by Paul Maunder from Ruler issue 110. And that's it from this Ruler Conversations. There'll be a Ruler tech podcast along next week.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.